that's why is your area known as Low Country? Yeah, so the, the Low Country is, is sort of a designation that's been given to us. It encompasses the uh, southeastern part of South Carolina. Uh, it's located below the fall line of South Carolina. Uh, and depending on who you ask, it can it can range between four and uh, 12 counties. Beaufort, Colleton, Hampton, Jasper, they're always considered in the low country. Uh, you would be hard pressed not to name Charleston in there as well. But basically, it's a uh, it's a vast area. Uh, and the reason why it's called the low country is it's located at sea level or somewhere less than 300 feet. So everything here is relatively low, really close to sea level. Uh, and with the tides that we have here, you know, there's a lot of interaction with this uh, co- this coastal area. Half of the East Coast marshlands in the United States um, are in the state of South Carolina. Half of that are in Beaufort County. So it's a very vast and expansive place to fish out of. You know, if you look at the the coast of the United States, any from you know the Miami area all the way up to St. Augustine and Jacksonville, you know, you've got those white sandy beaches. And then once you hit that area, uh, you start to get into some of those marshes. And then once you get up to, say, Wilmington, North Carolina, or the Outer Banks, you start getting into more of a mix of marsh and beach area. So you can kind of see that it is sort of condensed here um, in this one small area. We're located in the South Atlantic Bight, which is basically means um, that's where the, the United States kind of dips in right here at, at South Carolina. And basically that acts as a funnel for, you know, really everything else that's going on. So things that happen both to the north and the south of us really sort of happen to a greater extent, you know, here in the, in the low country. Um, maybe a little less so with big storms that we, we have on the East Coast, name, name storms, but things like tides and currents are really sort of compounded in this area. Also, another claim to fame that we have in this area is the Ace Basin, which is almost a quarter of a million acres of just protected habitat. And so when you think about that from a fishing perspective or just from an observation standpoint based and, and compare that to the number of, of people that we have living in our in our city. You know, Beaufort, the city of Beaufort has less than 20,000 people in it. Of course, the metro would expand on that, kind of compare that with uh, the Charleston area, and the Savannah area. You know, each one of those cities has at least 150,000 people. But with the metro area, you're talking almost a million people. So it's a very, very expansive resource. And the user group compared to other places is relatively small. So I almost don't even consider myself as, you know, a fishing guide per se. I I consider myself almost a liaison between having this incredible resource in my backyard and, and sort of bridging that gap for the angler and bringing them to where they need to be to sort of experience this area. I want to go back to the very first thing that you said was it's below the fall line. Can you touch on that just a second? Tell me what that is. It's almost like an imaginary line on the, on the surface um, that runs through South Carolina. It's from it's, it's where the Piedmont area meets the coastal region. Basically, when you cross that line, you're getting into some mixed uh, environments. So as opposed to being, you know, a little more freshwater oriented north of the fall line. Once we get into the south uh, east, we get into a little more sandy soils, a little more coastal environments, a lot of uh, a lot of wetlands. And then, of course, the uh, the saltwater influence that we have here. I don't think I caught that at first. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. Let's go into the show introduction from high atop the world headquarters of Southeastern Fly. This is the Southeastern Fly podcast. Feel free to share the podcast with your friends and your fishing partners. Smash that subscribe button so that you'll be the first to know when an episode drops. And if you find value in this podcast and want to give back, drop by the Southeastern Fly store and simply make a purchase. Who is our guest today on Southeastern Fly? He is a longtime inshore captain. He fishes the waters in and around Beaufort, South Carolina. He and I served on the Fly Fishing International Virtual Expo panel together. He gave some really good information, which I decided I wanted to follow up on. That information that he gave is the type of information that we all look for here on Southeastern Fly. He books trips out of Bay Street Outfitters in historic Beaufort, South Carolina. Please welcome Captain Tony Welch. Tony, thanks for stopping by. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. As I said in that introduction, you know, you had given really good information. There were four of us, I think. I really kind of attached to two things in that. One of the guys, it was all virtual. One of the guys was drinking wine. Uh, and I kind of, <laughs> I kind of like, wow, that is a good idea. Yep. 
that he was in the audience. He wasn't on the panel. That's right. And then since I had been over around the Hilton Head area and Charleston, Savannah and that area, whenever you started talking, I was like, wow, I can, I can really relate to that. And then you and I talked the other night, we were talking about fishing the creeks and canals and backwaters, uh, which interested even me, me even more. I, I believe it'll be interesting to other folks that listen to this podcast because even though it's saltwater and even though you're fishing for redfish, it sounded very similar to trout fishing on a river or a creek or something like that to where you could run a small boat. So I think that a lot of the folks in our audience will be able to relate to the creeks and the canals and the backwaters and that sort of thing. Can you explain some of the advantages of fishing those canals and creeks and backwaters uh, around Buford in that area and the nuances of fishing that type of, of water? Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, you, you touched on a lot of really good things there. Um, a lot of times when we think about saltwater fishing, uh, I mean, to me, the main thing that, that that pops into my mind would be fishing flats, these big, wide open expanses, which, which obviously we have that here. Um, the next thing that comes to my mind uh, would be, you know, maybe surf casting or, or casting jetties for, for things like stripers. Uh, and then you move on to things like uh, fishing mangroves down in the in the Everglades, which I love to do. Um, but one thing you don't really think a lot about are fishing these smaller creeks. And 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 we've got uh, a, a large amount of creeks here in the area, and it's it's one of my favorite things to do, um, both personally and as a guide. Um, one reason why I like it so much as a guide is because it, it it's it's sort of a familiar environment for my anglers, especially my trout anglers. You know, they, they come here to the low country, never have experienced salt water. And so it, it really sort of uh, really sort of suits their eye, I guess, is what you would say. You know, they, they've been in an environment very similar. Uh, obviously, when you think about creeks and, and, and trout, you're thinking about a little more running water than, than what we're going to be experiencing in these creeks. Uh, I don't want to discount how much running water there can be in those creeks, but it won't be running while we're in there. But it's a, uh, it's a great place to, to, to bring somebody that's, that's you know, sort of used to that environment. But it also does a number of things for us. If it's a little bit breezy out, you know, those wide open flats are the first thing to get muddied up, uh, to get choppy and get very hard to see into the water and find those fish pushing. So it's a, uh, those creeks, um, because of the, the tidal influence, have very steep banks. So, so we can get back in there and we can duck that wind. And then we can use those steep banks as well with the tall grasses on the side to sort of cut any glare that we would have in the water. Now, those creeks usually don't flow in a linear fashion. They're usually some sort of bend going through there, some sort of a obstruction. So you're not going to have perfect visibility the entire push of that creek, but you are going to have a lot of really good opportunities to, to find and, and, and see fish pushing around. And one of the things that I find whenever I'm out in salt water, like if we were on a mud flat, let's just take that mud flat that you brought up. I don't think my vision is as good as it used to be. So when a guy says, hey, there's fish at laying there at 10 o'clock, it takes me a minute to to get that 10 o'clock and, and see that fish until, you know, until I get three or four or five fish in and then i'm like okay i know exactly what i'm looking for and that helps me a little bit but i can see fish in those creeks it might be hey cast over toward that root on that tree or that that funny looking blade of grass or whatever's out there it gives a target to us trout anglers that fish trout we get to fish trout a whole lot more than we get to fish out in the salt so i think that you could say hey there's a target here's your target here's what you're looking for just drop it there and it feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it feels like that might be a little easier on me. Absolutely. Because when you're on those big flats, you know, you've got the whole clock face. You know, we're, we, we call out positions from, you know, I've had, have had shots at, you know, seven o'clock all the way back around the clock to around four o'clock. And so they can, these fish can pop up anywhere. When you get back in those creeks, uh, not only do you narrow that clock face because you're narrowing the body of water you're in, but you're you're giving yourself more opportunity to have landmarks that you can cast to. Just like you were saying, you know, maybe there's a blade of grass. Uh, maybe there's, you know, a, a big kind of indention where some fiddler crabs have been or some a big ball of fiddler crabs up on the uh, water line. You know, one of the main things that I'm looking for when I'm scouting these creeks is oyster mounds. Um, and so you can sort of pick out, you know, different oyster mounds 
and say, okay, it's on, it's on the, you know, I see a fish on the third oyster mound and it's on the point coming off of that. So you can get very specific on how you call um, those shots out. And also because those, those oyster mounds are there, what they're doing is they're holding a lot of really small bait that attracts even bigger bait, which attracts bigger redfish. So uh, redfish and, and creeks tend to get in a loop, that, and that's to say that they will sort of get a pattern that they like. Now, it's at a very particular stage of the tide, uh, and it will change as that tide fluctuates, but you can almost watch what that fish does one time and then kind of get a game plan together to get your, your shot on that fish. Um, it doesn't always happen like that, but it seems like in, in creeks it happens like that uh, more often than, than you would see on flats. So let's talk about that just a second here, because I want to make sure that that I'm clear on it. And I kind of hijacked this question. I went to the Facebook group and asked some questions, but I kind of hijacked this a little bit because uh, it's interesting to me. But you're talking about a pattern where that do they come off of it, off of that oyster bed, let's say, and kind of make a big circle then? Or are you talking about? the next time you come in with the water level the same. Actually, I'm talking about both. So if, okay. if there's a, if there's a Creek that I like, you know, and I, and I'm fishing it, usually I can, I can figure out what those fish are doing in that Creek and come back, you know, you don't want to come back day after day, but you can, you can sort of make it one of your stops, you know, to hit every now and then. But also inside of that, you know, the first time you're, you're pushing a, a Creek and let's say you see a fish, you know, kind of cruise down a bank and then he slides off into a little bit deeper water where you can no longer see him in my opinion it's best to stop where what you're doing right there and see if that fish does that exact same thing again you know a lot of times they'll they'll just swim right back up the creek and make that same loop down the bank again do you think the same fish hold in the same creeks for weeks on end or is it just fish cycling that creek i would go out on a further limb and say that they will spend their entire juvenile life in the same creek a lot of a lot of fish will do that uh, south carolina dnr stocks redfish uh, I know a lot of people that do not call in those tags on a juvenile redfish because they know that they're going to be from the exact place that they released them from. Uh, Our fish here just don't move, which is one good reason to to practice catch and release. Because if you want to, if you want to have a great opportunity the next day, I mean, the best thing you can do is let your fish go today. Yeah, right. But these fish will live in the same creeks now. There is a lot of seasonal uh, variation there. In the summertime, maybe that creek gets way too hot for them. So they pull off into a little deep, deeper water. But probably the next uh, fall or winter, you'll be able to find that same group of fish holding in that creek. And how many years do you think they live there? Uh, so our redfish probably stay in shore anywhere from three to five years. So I think on average, our fish grow anywhere from seven to 10 inches every single year. Uh, once a male fish gets to be 29 inches and a female gets to be 33 inches, uh, I believe they're considered mature at that point and they will have a tendency to start migrating offshore. Once they go offshore with the other adult fish, when they come back inshore, it's almost like they forgot how to feed in inshore waters and really stick with the other bigger fish and stay in, in really deep water. So catching a, a 40 inch fish in the low country is, is kind of a unicorn fish. Uh, it, it does happen on the fly, but it's something that's a, it's a little bit more difficult to do. Are they running up north and coming back down? And so the, what I'm getting at is around the outer banks and those, those guys out there, those folks out there are fishing off the, off the beach with their big long 12 foot surf rods and that sort of thing and catching those big they call them red drum is that this would that be possibly the same fish or am i off base there it, it would probably not be the exact same fish as far as i don't think our at least many of our redfish would migrate up that far it's more of a uh, you know kind of migrate out and then and then come back in so find that structure offshore and then and then come back in Usually we see those bigger fish come back in late summer, early fall. Okay, that makes total sense now. Jordan Red at Red's Flies is a listener and a friend of the Southeastern Fly Podcast. Jordan's patterns are tested extensively here in the Southeast and work all around the country. Testing each pattern ensures you have the best opportunity to increase your catch rate while you're on the water. Red's Flies carries hundreds of patterns, including standard nymphs and Euro nymphs, tailwater and freestone dry flies, and a very nice assortment of streamer patterns. Red's Flies is a small family-owned business, and they give back to the community by donating 10% of their profits to the Chattahoochee River Keepers, Trout Unlimited, Bonefish Tarpon Trust, and other conservation organizations who support our southern waters. 
go to www.redsflies.com and spell reds with two d's remember they offer free shipping on orders of fifty dollars or more and if you enter the code s-e-f-l-y at checkout you'll receive an additional 15 percent off your order that's redsflies.com and tell them you heard it all in the southeastern five podcast Right along the same lines, the tidal creeks. So we spent some time in Hilton Head, uh, and this was 30-some years ago, 30 years ago probably. And at that time, you could actually feed the dolphins. I don't know if you were around then or not, but you could go to Walmart and buy Ballyhoo frozen, let it thaw out and go feed the dolphins if you could get out there. So we went out on a dolphin feeding cruise. When we got there into Hilton Head on, we got there on Friday night and everybody picked what they wanted to do. And I was looking through one of those brochure things, you know, they have all do this and here's a $30 off coupon and blah, 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 all that right. stuff. I was looking through one of them and everybody was picking what they want to do, you know, like, oh, I want to go ride the bumper boats and I want to go play golf at this golf course and I want to do this. And they said, David, what do you want to do? And I said, and I just had went to one of those pages where it was an old, like a pirate ship. And there was a lady with her hand out and there was a dolphin. She had a little ballyhoo in her hand and there was a dolphin there. And she was feeding that dolphin. That dolphin was up out of the water coming in. I said, I'm going to do that right there. (laughs) So we went out and did that. And when it came time to feed the dolphins, I was like, hey, I'm ready to, you know, I'm ready to feed the dolphin. And she said, oh, no, you can't feed the dolphin. She said, only I can feed the dolphin. I was like, you got to be kidding me. This is $30 a piece. You know, this is my one shot to get out and yeah. feed the dolphins, and you just blew it. So as we were uh, coming back in, uh, my wife was with me, and her sister was with us, and my brother-in-law, brother sister-in-law. And there was a little boat there, and these people were feeding the dolphins off this little, looked like it was about 18-foot boat. On the side, it said, rent me. Yep. It had a telephone number and, and all that. So my wife said, I want to do that. Now, if there's anything to do with animals or mammals or or, or anything like that, especially dolphin. My wife is all in, you know, she wrote down the telephone number. So we went back to the condo and sitting out on the balcony and here comes this little rent me boat. That's what we started calling was the rent me boat. And they came into the marina that we were staying in on the back side of the island. And now there's a big, big bridge there that's kind of cuts the island kind of in half, I guess. It wasn't there at this time. Anyway, she said, go down there and see what it costs, you know, and it was like, Four hours was whatever. I don't remember. 200 bucks. We didn't have, you know, 200 bucks to our name, but we we scraped up enough money to do that. And we we asked the guy, hey, how do you feed it off? He can run up to Walmart and get some Ballyhoo. So we did that and we we go out and I was like, I want to go up the creek. So we, instead of going left toward the bay, right, we went right. And yeah. I yeah. didn't, they didn't say right on red returning, <clears throat> none of those little hints that would have been very uh, helpful. So we go exactly. up through there and, and uh, there's a boat that went over to Hague Island. Hague, Hague Island, I think, is that the name of it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. There's a boat that went from kind of our marina or one up, one up in, in <laughs> more shallow water to Hague Island and came back all day long. And uh, we passed that. And I was like, hey, it's, you know, we we don't need to be up in here with all these big boats. So we turn around and we start coming back out. And when we come back out, we were going around this right-hand turn bend in this in the shallow part of the bay and i ran that dead gum boat aground i can understand that that's a uh it, it's a it's a pretty common thing to happen around here yeah. so yeah well i was um, i was that guy <laughs> yeah yeah well i i think we've we've all been that guy i mean sometimes <laughs> i mean i'll go out there and you know i don't i don't really run aground but i'll i'll get intentionally stuck to to try to get back into some of these creeks but you know what you're what you're describing there well, well first of all with the with the dolphins i wouldn't i wouldn't do that anymore cuz no. they're they're more protected now so yeah they were not protected then yeah dnr discourages any interaction with the with those guys so uh that they, they it was perfectly fine back then and and we oh, yeah. you know we let the fish thaw out and we fed them but you could tell just like a trout around here, kind of get that matty mullet, um, just kind of discolored belly. Yep. Some of those dolphins were getting that already. And I don't know yeah. how long they'd have been doing it. I mean, we just swerved into this thing. But, um, but yeah, we, we at that time, it was okay to do it. But now, of course, Absolutely. you can't. But yeah. uh, obviously, we were on falling water when that was happening. And, and to my, yeah. <laughs> to my, 
to my credit, I wasn't the only one that ran aground because we were sitting there in the mud, basically touching the ground. And, and another rent me boat came in right beside us and ran aground right beside us with us going, no, no, don't come in here. So anyway, <laughs> it, uh, and that's something that absolutely happens. Our, our, our water here, um, it, it's, it's one of the most difficult waters that I've ever, I've ever navigated in personally. Um, but also, you know, I think with, with some of the stuff I've done with guides as well, I mean, I, you know, I have so much respect for this, this area just with our, with our tidal fluctuations. I mean, nothing ever looks the same. I mean, I know you've done some fishing in Louisiana. I looked at some of Louisiana's tides today. I think the biggest one that I saw, and I didn't look long, but it was, it was about two feet, but that was two feet from high to low. And that, and that lasted over um, a 12 hour period. We had a very, very soft tide today, and it was about six and a half feet high to low. And that was over a six hour period. Okay. So it's a very, very difficult sort of region to navigate. Navigating at dead low tide is, is probably your best option. It doesn't seem like it would be, hmm. but uh, at that point, all the, uh, all the oysters are going to be exposed. So really, I mean, you just take it slow and, and kind of work your way around the mud. Um, you follow navigational channels as, as much as much as possible, but it's one of those things you've got to be extremely careful um, navigating around here. And obviously, we were on on low tide. Uh, we probably yep. could have just hung out for about three hours, and that would have been the end of our trip. But we could have hung out and probably got back on, got back moving again. But uh, they came and pulled us off. But that was obviously low pot, low tide, and, and and you're talking about a huge swing in tide compared to some of the other places I've been, but. Can you give us some information on fishing low tide? Yeah, so low tide, you know, generally I like to fish. Uh, if I'm going to fish creeks, I'm going to fish those a little closer to low tide. And that goes back to those steep banks that we were talking about. If it's a steep bank and, those, and, that, uh, and that water's coming in pretty quick, it, it's not going to be long before those fish have a lot of water to hide. Mm. So there's nothing that's kind of forcing them up and on the edges. Uh, and once it gets to the grass, they're, they're pretty hard to see. I like to fish creeks at, at low water. Uh, I also like to fish those big mud flats that we were, that we were talking about. You know, every day when I start off fishing, that's one of the things that I want to show people because I've, I, I just have this feeling in the back of my mind that that's what people want to see are these, these big saltwater flats. They want to see these wide open spaces where hopefully they can see a fish. Um, and weather dependent, you know, I want to, I definitely want to show that to them. Um, those, those flats can be frustrating, especially to the new saltwater angler. Um, you'll find a lot of times that, uh, you know, there are a lot of mullet up there that are sort of, uh, they can be sort of distracting, jumping <laughs> around and pushing water. Yes. And then, you know, a lot of times we get hung up as anglers, you know, trying to see the fish. And a lot of times you're not going to do that. You're, you're looking for the pushes, the, the signs that that fish is there. Um, there are countless times where I see fish tail or fish with his back totally out of the water, so much so that his eyeballs are out of the water. And you'll see that some, but I'm far more effective by looking for these pushes, either singles or doubles, or, you know, as we get on into the wintertime, you know, 500 to 1,000 fish all in a school. You know, those schools are a little bit easier to see, but it's also very deceiving on where those, those fish are in that school. Because as, as that school moves, you know, you've got an area about 10 feet ahead of that push where those those fish are moving and they just haven't they're they're causing the wake behind them. You know, it's it's much like a boat. You know, that wake is that wake is where that boat has been, but it's not where that boat is currently. So it's one of those things that I, I love to do and, you know, try to do it every chance that I get. If we have a little wind, we can use that shoreline fishing the lee. Uh, side of the the wind uh, have great shots doing that. So we we move around as much as we can to create those situations. So if I'm if I'm tying flies for low tide, would are you using like jig hooks that type sixty forty five degree angles uh, hooks, or are you using just regular old saltwater hooks? So I've started using a lot more jig hooks here in the past. I would say two years. I, I've I've been doing a lot of different stuff um, with with fly tying here recently, especially for my summertime stuff. What I like to tell people, you know, especially people that don't get to do this often is, you know, I can tell you my favorite redfish fly and that's the one that's in front of a redfish. I, I tell a lot of people that, that color doesn't matter. Size doesn't matter what that, what that fly is, you know, made out of that doesn't matter until it does. So 
you know, really, I kind of start off the day with a few truths. If it's if it's bright outside, I like a lighter pattern, a more natural pattern. Uh, and if it's cloudy or cloudy water, then I start with, you know, my blacks or my black and purples. Um, you'll find situations. Uh, there was a situation um, all summer long. Well, not all summer, but you know, for about 10 days where we had bright, sunny days and I couldn't get anything to eat anything but a black and purple. Um, so there, there are some, you know, kind of, kind of exceptions to the rule, but, uh, you know, I start off, uh, most of the days, you know, kind of with, with that in mind. Uh, but as far as tying goes, I love to, uh, I love to use pretty heavy flies. Um, so a, like a medium, uh, lead dumbbell eye, uh, I always put a weed guard on it. You know, everybody, you know, has their own opinion on weed guards. You talk to people and they say, well, if it's, if it's protecting the hook, then it's protecting it from a fish as well. But, you know, really the way a redfish is designed with those crushers uh, and the weed guard that I use is a, is a 30 pound Mason's hard, hard mono. It's a single strand. And that to me is, is enough to, you know, either fish some, some low tide mud flats where we have that, you know, sort of red grass on the bottom uh, to try to not get hung up, hung up there. Um, or, you know, even in the, uh, shorter Spartina grass, um, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll protect the, uh, the hook point there. So you don't get fouled up, you know, it, it's, it's weed resistant is definitely not weed proof. So you're still going to get hung up, but if you try to bring a, a bare hook, you know, with no weed guard through these, this environment, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be very frustrating because there's right. just so much to get caught up on. And then outside of that, usually I have three things that I want my fly to have. I want it to have some sort of flash and that's to grab the attention. And I'll come back and talk about that in just a second. I want some sort of synthetic, something like an EP brush um, to build up a profile. I want that fish to be able to see that fly from from above it, from below it, from behind it, from side, all all different angles. I want a redfish to be able to see that fly, and so that synthetic really helps. That um, it also helps with pushing water, but I'm I'm not quite as worried about pushing water as you would be maybe on some trout streams or maybe uh, in the Florida Everglades. Also, I want some natural fibers in there as well. Um, those those natural fibers, say um, uh, some marabou or some uh, a zonker strip. You know, when you sh give that fly a strip and that natural fiber sort of shrinks down, it's always going to rebound. So it's almost like that that fly is giving you some movement even when you're not stripping it. Back to the flash. Uh, don't use any flash in the winter time when we've got those fish schooled up. And then there's really large schools. I want to give those fish as few negative cues as possible. I am trying to essentially hide that fly um, from those redfish um, because what I do at the vice, uh, Mother Nature does a way better job than I do. So I'm not going to hide it better than Mother Nature does. And I've got, if I've got 500 fish, I've got a thousand eyeballs that are, are there to pick something apart. So I'm just trying to be as natural, the least amount of intrusion that I can. I've, I've heard that groups of fish. many times. If it's really cold, no fish, no flash, uh, no no flash, not yep. no fish. Really cold, no flash. So I've heard yep. that a lot of times. And, and yep. uh, there's a lot of folks out there, a lot of guides out there that live and die by that. So you're not the first one to have, to have said that. So it's, it, it really does make sense. Yeah. And especially uh, especially in this area, you know, during the, the summertime, you know, <clears throat> a lot of people think we have dirty water. It's just it's just got uh, it's just got a lot of algae. That warm water allows that algae to, to bloom. So these fish are used to feeding in dark water. Now you you go to you know this time of year, uh, really kind of November fifteenth to you know uh, late March, early April, and that algae can't bloom. So we've got you know essentially gin clear water. Uh, so you take a fish that's used to to feeding on something small in dark water, and then you got to throw something even even smaller than that in uh, in the clear water. So. Um, I fish anywhere from size two to two aughts in the, uh, in the summertime and, and really in the uh, wintertime, uh, drop down to size four. And that's, that's the largest I usually go. The low tide, is there any chance for a wading angler to get in and, and wade around there at all on low tide? That seems to me like that might be the possibly the best time. I don't know. It, it's, it is one of the best times to fish. The, the problem here 
is the environment and that that title movement. So um, with that title movement, you have got a tremendous amount of nutrients that are being pushed in and out of this area. Uh, a lot of that comes from dead and decaying Spartina grass. You know, nothing's wrong with the grass. It's just part of the process. But with that push of water and all that new, all those nutrients in the in environment, you've got a lot of you know what we call pluff mud which is, is essentially almost like quicksand. And, and that's scary in and of itself. And then you throw into the mix that there could be some oyster shells underneath. You know, I've heard some, some pretty bad horror stories of, of people falling into some pretty bad situations uh, trying to get through low tide by, by wading. So if you're going to wade during low tide, I would stick to, you know, trying to stay around, you know, some white shell. You know, usually white shell is going to be a little more uh, of a firm bottom, or you could try to walk through the marshes and, and get to a creek and, and maybe have access that way. But it's it's going to be a pretty tough kind of way to go because there's there's areas where you know the marsh will the marsh grass will end and then the water line will be you know fifty yards away at low tide. So you've got a lot of environment that you've got to get through just to get to the water line. So it's it's a pretty tough thing to do um, for the wade fishermen. Well, let's let's flip the script here just a little bit then, and let's talk about the flood tide. So, I've also been on the water during the flood tide, and uh, of course, the Low Country is known as known for its the flood tide. But we won't always hit that flood tide either. I mean, we uh, and I'm talking about probably the vacationing. Let's take the vacationing angler. Let's say that they don't always hit the flood tide. Uh, but you know, if somebody's planning a trip, they can they can forecast that out a little better probably than what uh, than Mama wants to go to Hilton Head for for uh, you know a week in the summer. But if if we're lucky and it all comes together, can you give us some information on fishing that flood tide? We can forecast these these flood tides out you know really far in ex- in advance. So uh, if you're looking to plan your let's say summer twenty twenty four. Um, vacation, you know, we can, we can with some accuracy, um, you know, sort of predict these, these flood tides right now, uh, for summer 2023, it's, it's very easy. We have our, we have our tide logs already out. So we can, we can look at those tides and see what it, what's going to be a good tide. And so when I'm looking for a flood tide to fish in the low country, you know, I, I kind of start at the resource that everybody has. And that's that's a tide log. And you can pick them up. You know, you can get them online. You can get them, you know, at, at any good shop. It gives you a list of high and low tides in the area over the entire year. And so I get the southeast tide log and I will look at the Savannah River entrance. Now, the reason why I use the Savannah River entrance, it gives you two, two options, Savannah River or Charleston. Uh, I use the Savannah River just because back in the day when I would, was doing this without an, an app, it was easier math. So that's that's the only reason why I do that. But if you look at Savannah River and it's a 7.3 there, you know you're going to be pretty close to having uh, a good flood tide. Anything more than that in that shorter Spartina grass um, is going to flood. And that's really what we're looking for. You know, there's a lot of Spartina grass in the area, a lot of long grasses in the area, but that shorter Spartina grass is going to be the environment where these fish tail and that we're able to get to them with a fly rod. The reason why it's shorter grass is because it doesn't flood all the time. We get two high tides a day, but maybe, you know, we get 10 flood tides a, uh, a month. Uh, maybe not even that. And, and some of those flood tides, you know, they'll be in the, in the dark. So you won't even be able to get to fish those. So what we have, we got to have a saying in the low country, if it's uh, the near below, you're good to go. So that means um, that shorter Spartina grass is going, when it's below your knee, it's usually going to be a firmer bottom. And so that is an opportunity for uh, an angler who wants to wade and pursue fish uh, with a fly rod in South Carolina. They can, they can do that without having uh, step foot in a boat. And, and basically what happens is, um, these redfish, you know, a redfish is going to tail anywhere from from Mexico to Massachusetts. These these fish, that's that's just what they do. They have a um, an inferior mouth or a subterminal mouth, which basically means they have an overbite, which means they are designed to feed on something below their body. And so they know that these these fiddler crabs are making their burrows in this uh, in this short grass. And the reason why they're making their burrows in the short grass is because they don't want to get flooded out either. 
And so these fish, and I don't think it's every redfish is really keyed in on this, but some are, they, they know that those, those crabs are up there and they will go up there and root around to find that next meal. So obviously most of our fly patterns are going to be sort of, I don't even want to say crab imitation. They're going to be, you know, crab suggestions. So, you know, you don't have to get too technical with the fly selection here. Really, I try to use something uh, size two, uh, and I try to use something um, with a copper color. Also, something that I do is I try to include a little bit of purple in the fly as well. We have a, a lot of our uh, fiddler crabs will have this purple stamp on the back. So it's a, uh, it's a color that I think these fish have just learned to want to go after when they're up there on the flats. But it's a, it's a really cool visual game um, because these fish will go to feed on these, on these crabs. And when they do, it's, it's below their body. And so when they tip up, that tail sticks completely out of the water. So we go from the low tide of, of you know, being, you know, very selective on what we're seeing and what we're pursuing to being on the flood tide and everybody in the boat can, can see this fish. You know, there, there is some skill involved. The more, the more fish you see tail, the better, the better you get at it. Um, but when you've got, especially, uh, me on the back and two anglers down low, it, it gives you great angles to see these fish different ways. So it, it can become pretty effective, uh, in that regard, but even just wading out in their environment, you're on their level. So, I mean, if you kind of think about it as you get higher, say on a polling platform and you, you've got a triangle on the water, um, that profile gets smaller and smaller, the higher and higher you get. So I'm not going to say you're at an advantage by being in the water and waiting for these fish, but you, you know, you, you got to be an optimist with it. And so you've got a lot of things playing into your, into your favor and you can do so in a little bit, uh, kind of safer in a little bit safer environment than, than waiting around at, at low tide. Just seeing, I love tailing fish too. I mean, who doesn't, you know, which way are they pointed? Yep. You know, it's tailing. All right. Which way is he pointing? I can't tell. And always pointed right, just cast right, just a six inches to his tail and you'll, you'll knock him right in the head and just man there's yeah. something something about that is super exciting i can see three people in a boat you you up on top two people down and this excitement just continues to build and build and build and then you make that cast and when everything goes right it's so much fun you know and then if it does it you get the oh you know but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then and then everybody gets to see that you know and it's good good nature really but <laughs> You know, what you said there is when everything goes right. And that's one of the, that's one of the most, you know, kind of frustrating things about flood tide fishing is, you know, things, things have to go your way because you are in some grass. These fish are very intent on what they're doing. So you've got, I mean, there's a, there's a great deal of skill involved, no doubt. Um, but there's, there's also, you, you've got to be in situations that, that sort of work into your favor. I, I've count, casted to countless uh, redfish that, you know, you, you get in front of them and you make that perfect cast. And then all of a sudden there's, they start wagging the other <laughs> way. Uh, you try to make a good cast on them. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you can't see that fish anymore. And he's, it's just like, he's vanished up there on the flat and you have no idea what happened. So it, it, it's, it's definitely one of the, the coolest things, you know, and it's, it's one of the things that made me want to do this full time after yeah. seeing that the first time. It's, you know, it's it's sort of one of those things that gets in your blood and it's just absolutely amazing. And the fact that we can predict it with some sort of regularity and, and I use predict, you know, sort of in finger quotes there because, you know, it, it's like some days you'll get up there and everything is absolutely perfect. And, you know, for whatever reason, you see one tail and it's just the it's just the most frustrating thing to have happen to you. But the flip side of that is you can have days that just seem absolutely terrible. The wind's blowing 20 miles an hour. There's there I've had white caps on the on the flats on on the flood and and still done wow. pretty well. So it's um you know it's just one of those things that you got to pursue and and stay after and you know you'll you'll definitely be rewarded at the end. There's really something to be said about putting someone on a fish, even if if it's a trout that's not feeding on top. Let's just say it's feeding on the bottom and you can see it which is similar, yep. uh, not yep. exact, but it's similar. There's something about that to say, hey, cast right there, do these three or four things in the trout world. It's let it float down, you know, and and be ready and then tell them when to set the hook. There's something about that. And that same thing just came through with you of, I mean, you could see it, it's like 
the excitement's there. I could tell, you know, of cats. Absolutely. And, all right, be ready. And, you know, little strip, little tick, little whatever. And yep. Let it sit. Okay, ready? Come tight on it. You know, that sort of thing is, I can see where that's super exciting. Yeah, I think it's the exact same thing in the trout world. Kind of, kind of what really drives that excitement for me is, you know, on those low tide fish, and I'm sure for you in the, in the trout world, there are fish that you're going to see that, that somebody else may not. Mm. And when you guys can connect on those fish, you know, that's a, that's a lot of fun. But when you got when you've got somebody and they see the fish with you and you're just, you know, kind of experiencing that together. And then that's when, you know, when, when buck fever really oh, sets yes. in and you, and you can actually, you know, kind of experience that with them. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's like nothing else. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the greatest, one of the greatest feelings in the world. When you get a trout guy and any trout sets, how do you, how do you keep people from doing that? So it, Every, every God is going to be different. Uh, me, I'm not a, I'm not a yeller. I'm not a, I'm not a screamer. Uh, I've had saltwater guides that, you know, sort of got in my head. So my main, you know, my main goal is to, is to put people on fish, but another, you know, big goal right alongside that would be not to get in somebody's head. Right. You know, what I do is I try to talk about it early. If they say, you know, I've, I fish trout, you know, and I fish, you know, four times, four times a week, you know? And so he says, I'm, or, or she says, I'm going to, I'm going to trout set. And I'm going to say, here's, here's what we're going to do. What I want you to do is when you're stripping this fly in, I want you to listen to me and I'm going to tell you to get that rod tip low. That doesn't mean that your rod tip is too high unless I tell you it's too high. Um, but I want you to get that rod tip low and I'm going to tell you to keep that rod tip low the entire time. Uh, so much so that I might not even tell you how to strip. I want you to listen to my voice and you'll know how to strip by me telling you to keep your rod tip low. And so that almost takes them out of the moment because they're thinking about, you know, you know, I'm not taking them away from their fishing, but I'm taking them away from being worried about, about trout setting. And so it's, if they do trout set, you know, it's, it's no big deal. We're going to, we're going to move on. We're going to, we're going to find some, some other people or some other fish. But if you keep that rod tip low and you keep stripping, you know, you're going to come tight to a redfish. It's not, it's not tarpon where you have to keep that rod tip low, and then you have to make sure that hook finds its home. Right. Um, the the hook and your stripping kind of does does the work for you, especially on an aggressive fish. But really, uh, any redfish, it, it, it's going to be it's going to be fine to you know not stick you know quite as hard as as you think you need to. I have listened to the guide and closed my eyes. Yeah. Just to be honest, and just keep the rod tip low and keep on stripping and yep. you know you feel it and your eyes are closed and it's not for some reason for me probably not for everybody i'm probably the exception not the rule but rod tip low strip 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 and you'll feel it and you yeah. just keep stripping and keep pulling and eventually you're going to grab that line and set you know yeah. but not 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 like a trout set it'll just be it'll be a it will be a strip set but right. that's, you know, maybe I'm, like I said, maybe I'm the exception, not the rule. And and what you said there, the cadence you were, you were talking about, about strip, 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 you know, that to me, that sounds like a fast strip and on fast strips, you're, you're almost always going to hook that fish before you react to the, the trout set. So uh, a lot of times we get away with a trout set just by stripping it a little bit faster and, and really, you know, kind of what you want to do, you know, from my perspective is wait. Um, maybe a little bit longer than you should and almost feel like you're trying to catch up with that fish. If you just can't get away from the, from the trout set, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's another good thing to do. Yeah. It takes a, it takes a minute to get away from it. I think the big thing here is not letting it get in your head. Like you said, you know, don't let the guide get in your head. Just, you know, listen to them, do what you can do. And if it, you know, if you trout set, oh, well, you trout set. If you miss the fish, oh, well, let's go find another one. If you got it, all right, you got away with one there, but yeah. don't, don't let it get to you. And I've seen people, you know, trout set and just the guy get all crazy and, you know, and it's, you know, nuclear fusion didn't happen this time, you know, and just, <laughs> you know, nobody yeah. dies on the table, you know, we're, that's not, right. we're not, it's not a nuclear reactor that's going to go off. You know, we missed a fish. So that's right. And so, you know, what I like to, to tell a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, if they, if they trout set and they know it, they, they beat themselves up. And I tell them, you know, the only thing more ridiculous than, than trout setting a redfish is when I go out to, to Colorado and I'm fishing for trout and I have a, 
you know, a real nice trout that it eats a dry fly and I, <laughs> and I try to strip set him and, and totally miss. So I get some, I get some real ugly looks when that happens too. And I think, I think that's a lot more ridiculous. So yeah, I think you gotta, you gotta keep everything pretty lighthearted. Yeah. You gotta keep it in perspective. It's, it's not, uh, it's not rocket surgery or whatever they say. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Although sometimes it feels like it in, in, during the during the minute, but generally, if you just crack a joke on it, move on. People get it, and you know everything's fine. So, absolutely. So I think that leads us to that one last question. We asked this question of everybody, and I, the reason why I asked this question is I don't want to miss anything that's important. You know, like. We've got some questions and we've, we've bounced some things off of each other, but a lot of times you'll, you'll think, all right, I got this one dialed in. And then you talk to somebody later and they go, hey, you know, I wish you would have asked this question. So I kind of, kind of turned that back on the folks that we're talking to and, and ask them, you know, what is the one thing we haven't asked about fly fishing in the low country that we should have asked? The thing about the low country, you know, this environment, it's it's going to be a little bit different than some of the other environments that you that you face, whether that's that's trout fishing or fishing for for tarpon somewhere or, or, or permit somewhere else. You know, what I always like to to, to tell people is, is we've read, you know, a lot of literature, especially I did, you know, sort of getting into this, you know, probably, you know, I guess I guess it's been 25 years now um, and really everything. Everything was, you know, was books back then. You know, right. it's, it's, we didn't really have YouTube to learn things. So <laughs> everything that I was reading kind of early on, you know, was that focus on your accuracy when you're casting first uh, and then worry about everything else um, second. Um, but really, as a saltwater fisherman uh, and as a guide, you know, kind of what I would like to see. Uh, would be somebody focus on on distance first. And you say, well, what is distance? I'd say, well, cast the whole fly line. Okay, I, I can't cast the whole fly line. I, I don't know if you can, but I no. it's not something, I mean, maybe maybe I could with a big tailwind, but, um, you know, <laughs> exactly. and so, since we realized that we both can't do that, you know, so what's distance? Well, some sometimes it might be somebody going from 20 feet to 25 feet or maybe 30 feet. And so really what that does is it opens up more opportunities. And then, you know, once we talk about distance side of things, I still don't think that it's time to talk about accuracy. And, and I'm just speaking, from my perspective in the low country. I think next, probably the most important thing is uh, the quickness of your delivery. I like a fly to pr be presented to a, a fish as, as quickly as possible. These fish are always on the move. So once it's time to go, it's time to go. And that means being alert at all times. Um, there are times where, you know, I'll, I'll tell people, you know, you got a fish that just popped up He's 20 feet and he's nine o'clock, you know, and if you, if you hesitate, you know, that fish is not going to be caught. So, uh, quickness of delivery, you know, it comes with being aware, but it also comes with, with, with practice and, and not, uh, carrying too much line, uh, not having too many false casts, you know, you want to kind of shoot it, you know, out there as quickly as possible. But then after we talk about that, I still don't think accuracy is as important as, uh, as um, a quiet body while you're casting. Mm. Um, I've got a lot of folks that are great casters and I tell them, you know, do what you're doing, just do it inside of a telephone booth. Now it always happens that I'll get some 13 year old kid that'll turn around and look at me and say, what's a telephone right. booth? And I'm like, Oh, well, I guess got a whole other situation you know, going on there. <laughs> that's right. But, uh, you know, what I'm, what I'm telling you there is, you know, these fish can kind of feel everything that's going on. And so at least when I am giving casting instruction, a lot of times I'll have the person that's, that's learning to fly cast, put their, if they're right-handed, put their left foot forward. Uh, that way they can look back at their back cast, take a peek back there. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if you grew up playing sports or not, but putting your left foot in front is a very athletic position. Right. And when you stick somebody in a very athletic position, they're going to want to move. And as they move on the boat, those pressure waves are going to go out and they're going to, and they're going to impact the fishing. If we're in the back of a Creek, you know, they're going to hit the Creek walls and come back on us. Uh, if we're on a big flat and we've got a lot of fish working, um, those fish will be able to, to feel it. So a lot of times we have plenty of distance. Uh, we just won't, we just won't be able to get, you know, close enough to those fish because we're just, we're just a little too rocky on the boat. Now I do everything I can to mitigate that. 
uh, either by pushing us up on shallow on a shallow area where the bottom of the boat will touch the bottom, right? Or I will stick the push pole in the ground and rock opposite of what the angler up front is doing. But if you can, if you can, you know, sort of quiet your feet and sort of calm those big muscle groups down. Um, you know, something like that is going to catch you more fish. But, um, you know, after we talk about that point, then I think it's time to talk about accuracy. And, and probably, you know, one of the funniest things that, that I, I tell people is to to not be accurate. I don't want you to be accurate in the traditional sense. So if you're if you're coming to fish in the low country, whether with a guide or on your own for tailing fish in the grass, you should practice with your targets having some sort of movement. So let's say you put the the pie tin out there that everybody wants to cast to. Well, never cast to that pie tin. Always say, well, that pie tin is moving right to left and let me cast two feet in front of where that pie tin is going. Mm-hmm. A great drill for that would be to get a water bottle, throw the water bottle out there and whatever the way the, the top of the water bottle is pointing, then you lead that water bottle by two feet. You'll learn a lot by doing small drills like that. I mean, really it's, it's, it's the same thing in trout fishing in that, you know, I'm, I'm asking you to lead fish with, with trout. You're leading all the, all the trout that you can. I mean, for the most part, I guess we could come up with some, some outliers, but the difference is in in trout fishing, you know, a lot of times you're saying, okay, cast to the top of that seam right there you know where the fish is going to be. So you're, you're leading that fish. You're just, your, your target is, is just different than what your fish is. So it's, um, it's a hard concept for, um, for people to grasp. Um, but once you can do that, you're going to improve, uh, numbers and and you're going to have a lot more fun fishing in salt water. Yeah. Salt water is a movement game. I want to go back to, you had made a comment somewhere toward the beginning of that, uh, of getting the fly in front of the fish quickly. That's what it was. Yeah, you were talking about yep. speed. I'm going to go a little diff- different direction with that. And I'm going to have to start tying up some saltwater stuff here in a, another couple of weeks. Would you say that you want the fly to get down quick? Uh, and what I mean by that is a little bit larger dumbbell eyes to get down a little faster. Is there any very time that you do that? Everything's all relative. So, you know, when you're th- coming from the trout world, You've got things, um, you're probably fishing a lot of times in water deeper than I am. Uh, I catch most of my fish in less than 18 inches of water. Yeah, we are. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. And so, and also another, you know, sort of big element in getting a fly down would be the current in the, in the water. Right. Um, You're going to have to fight some of that current with, with weight. And then depending on how you're stripping you're going to kind of have to overcome maybe some of that swing that you would get as well in the, in the drift and stripping that back with that weight as well. So I would say that our flies are probably, I would say they're pretty similarly weighted. I am wanting that fly to get down really quick. And I think, um, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm probably, you know, kind of in the majority there that, uh, I don't use a whole lot of B-chain. Matter of fact, I can't stand B-chain eyes for what I do. Yeah. My primary gripe with B-chain is that they are hollow in the center. And so if you're going to get salt water in it. Once you get salt water in that B-chain, it's that fly's done. Yeah. And so, but I don't think they get the fly down as, as quickly as they need to. So that medium dumbbell eye, for the most part, is is probably pretty good once you start getting into some of the uh extra large um you're getting into some very specific kind of patterns i do have some stuff like that especially bigger patterns on bigger hooks mm-hmm. because if you've got a if you've got a medium dumbbell on some of these um bigger hooks that i use it doesn't it doesn't flip it over really as quick as what i would like no. if at all yeah and so um, you want enough weight to where it's going to hit, where it's going to hit the you know bottom within, you know, two seconds. But really, I mean, any any eye that you put on there, besides like a, uh, you know, just like a plastic eye, is going to get that down uh, just fine. You also want to be thinking about um, the materials you're using. So yeah. if it's all you know, kind of splayed out, uh, say EP fibers or EP brush. Uh, and you, and you don't trim, uh, which is, is perfectly fine. Uh, you know, that it's going to be a little more buoyant, especially on that, on that first cast. So, you know, you, you definitely want to wet that fly to help it get down, but 
you know, even with enough false casting and, and kind of hanging out, it's going to, it's going to dry out eventually. Yeah. I, I, I've seen patterns in the, even in the trout world that they look fantastic, but you know that by the time they get down in the, into the fish's face, uh, especially some of the deeper water that we fish on multiple generators, you know, that by the time it gets down there, it's, you know, it's time to eat a sandwich because it's lunch. You know, yeah. it's just, there's just too much material. They look fantastic. And there's a lot of hard work that goes into it, but it's not always that effective. So you got to, right. there's some kind of balance there. And I don't know what that is, but yeah, I, I can see where folks might put a little bit too much uh, material and it, it all of a sudden is falling, you know, super slow, which in some yeah. cases that's probably fine, but it doesn't sound like it's all that great there either. You know, I just like to give these fish the best chance possible. And so, you know, since they, they are designed to feed below their bodies. I try to get that fly down, you know, with whatever that means. Um, if it's in the grass and it's, you know, trying to punch through that grass a little bit more, then yeah, I'll, I'll add a little extra weight there. Um, if I know I'm going to be fishing some some white bottom and it's going to be a little bit deeper water, but I can still see these fish pretty well, um, then I'll add a little bit more weight there to try to get it down. But I mean, make no mistake, a, a redfish will still eat off the surface. Uh, I hear, I can, he I can hear them all over the marsh eating off the surface. But I think our our redfish in the low country, for whatever reason, are not as um, not as skilled in taking something off the surface as say you see down in uh, Louisiana. And it's not just the big fish that I'm talking about. I'm I'm talking about you know compared size wise, usually our fish you know, take a, take a few swipes at it before they, before they'll get something um, like a Hell's Bay hopper. It's a, it's a great pattern, but you know, for our redfish, um, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to increase my odds, you know, as, as much as I possibly can. Definitely. Yeah. I can see that for sure. Wow. That's a ton of good information right there. I mean, golly, good job, dude. That was really awesome. good really good we say we close this thing out okay excellent that sounds good to me all right everybody out there feel free to share this podcast with your friends and your fishing partners subscribe or follow so you'll be the first to know when an episode drops if you find value in this podcast and want to give back drop by the southeastern fly store and simply just make a purchase so tony fishes the waters in and around beaufort south carolina uh, as i said he and i served on the fly fishing international virtual expo panel he books trips out of Bay Street Outfitters in historic Beaufort, South Carolina. Tony, really appreciate you stopping by. Thank you again. David, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You just listened to Captain Tony Welch on Southeastern Fly. See you next time.